The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now then, you're welcome along. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon as we go through the Sunday papers. I'll bring you through the back pages. So uh, no surprises as to what's taking up the most real estate. It is very much Brentford 4, Manchester United 0. And we'll start here with the Sunday Mirror. It's a picture of Ronaldo and he's given his face rub. Neville, uh, Savage's shambolic Reds, men versus under nines. That was his line on Sky Sports straight afterwards on the uh, television. It was like an under nines team. And uh, alongside that, Thomas Tuchel ahead of their game against Spurs today. We must buy big stars. He was asked if they need new players. He said yes. So Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Frankie de Jong and uh, Leicester City defender Wesley Fofana very much on Chelsea's list at the moment. That is the mirror. The sun then, 10 green bottle jobs. Picture of Manchester United in their uh, questionable away jersey, I think we can safely say as well. So... Uh, rubbish is the uh, quote from Eric Ten Hag. Actually, he used the word rubbish about the performance. Well, I guess what else can he say, really? So that's the back page of uh, Sun Sport. And they show the league table at Manchester United, bottom of the table on zero points and the worst goal difference. The Observer go with a picture of David De Gea. United's new low, De Gea's early blunders at Brentford spark 4-0 defeat that leaves his side bottom. City go top. Then we have the Sunday World. Picture Ronaldo, where did it all go wrong? He's got his uh, hands on his hips. Hard to know which goals uh, these pictures are taken at. It was all uh, miserable throughout, really. A lot of uh, dejected body language on, on Manchester United's part. Maguire there. and uh, We have Bruno Fernandes uh, gesturing to players as he uh, tends to do in these moments. So uh, Cristiano exit could be hastened by United stung by the bees. This is the back page of the Sunday World. A similar uh, picture in the Sunday mirror, which I've done already. Mail on Sunday. It's uh, Harry Maguire and Christian Eriksen and uh, Fred, and they're walking back to the halfway line for another tip-off. 4-0. Uh, we're a load of rubbish. Frustrated manager Ten Hag lays into United team after Brentford route, as Neville says they look like an under-nine side. Picture then from Sunday Independent. It's Ronaldo on his knees and he's gesturing to the heavens. United sink to new low. Ten Hag's woes compounded in humiliating loss and then a picture of Ten Hag Penny for his thoughts rock bottom is the headline on the front page of the Sunday Times as he surveys the scene Ten Hag's woeful United prop up the table after conceding four in shambolic first 35 minutes and then beneath that manager hits out a team's lack of hunger which is not the first time that accusation has been made against Manchester United very happy to say we have Kieran Shannon of the Irish Examiner afternoon Kieran. Hi Joe. And Timmy McCarthy who has captained and managed the Irish basketball team. Timmy, you're very welcome. Thanks Joe, good to be here. Hi Kieran. Hi Timmy, good to hear you. So Kieran, I suppose the challenge for any journalist today is to say something new about Manchester United. What caught your eye? Yeah, well look, I think the last time I was on with you Joe, Jonathan Norcroft had, was doing a series across the Sunday Times um, on the decline of Manchester United and it was it was to him I, I went to for he was on the match report for the Times uh, yesterday and just a paragraph just summed it up so many problems predate then to, uh, the, the manager uh, Den Hagen that it's a laughable recruitment poor dressing room culture a hated ownership and inadequate players um, as you said it's it's a, it, this is this is constant. Um, although I think no, the likes of Jonathan Norcroft and um, Eamon Sweeney on hold the back page, the, the last page of the the Sendo, uh, delve into all those issues. 
Um, but it, it is, it's just the perfect storm of, it, it starts with management. And, and look, I suppose for, there's the parallels you have to take is nearly with Liverpool where um, we see now where that they were able to turn it around, but they were at a real rock bottom again under despised American ownership uh, with Hicks and, and Gillette and how that was the start of their turnaround. Like I, I, I've seen the line said that Liverpool were never as bad as United are now. That's not necessarily true. I mean, the Roy Hodgson season or half a season comes to mind. Um, but it turned around. It started with ownership. And look, when, when Gary Neville has said it about, look, it's time for the management. I mean, there's a lot of common denominators in this. And the manager, it, it starts with the ownership. Um, and now, so like the, the the players' recruitment is obviously a huge issue, but what, where does that stem from? It stems from the ownership who are, who are appointing these people. So uh, it's like the line is, has been, this is Man United's worst start to a season in 30 years. 30 years ago, they went on to win that league, their first league since 68. Uh, they lost to Sheffield United 2-1 like they did last week against um, last week they lost 2-1 to Brighton and then they lost 3-0 to Everton uh, but the difference was while that seemed like a crisis at the time it was a blip um, and Eric Cantona one signing was able to change it all uh, as a catalyst it's, it's going to take a lot more than that to turn this around for United this is a full-blown crisis and until the ownership issue and it's a case now of nearly how ruthless or how strategic the Man United supporters are and you know there's that line in Michael Collins film we have a weapon more powerful and it's our refusal like is is it going to take only 20,000 in Old Trafford for the for it to drop uh, the penny to drop because it's just ingrained. Like, Joe, we went through that piece with Jonathan Norcroft. There was the famous line from Zlatan saying, the security guys don't even know who I am. You know, like every day, it's like I'm just a, a, a normal employee when Zlatan put the spin on the greatest player in the world. Whatever about that. You should be able to know. Like, I'm reading I'm reading the Pep Lenders book on Klopp, uh, his, assistant, his assistant coach, and just the culture there is in Liverpool just how it's a great place to be. And you can see they're all in sync. And, and you see that in everything in GA from county board chairman, manager, coach, players. United are all run like that. Den Hag's not necessarily the problem, but um, he's, and the recruitment, the players, are they, they're a symptom of the problem. That was the issue with the Jamie Redknapp thing. The players are a symptom of the problem, not the cause of the problem. It's the ownership. And that's where it all starts from. And that's where it's got to start the, the change. To give uh, listeners a sense of some of the specifics in the papers today, for instance, uh, Danny Murphy is talking about De Gea. De Gea is the wrong man for the job. And he says if Ten Hag wants Manchester United to play out from the back, he needs a goalkeeper who can do it. That's not David De Gea. And he mentions the Guardiola example uh, regarding Joe Hart and how he um, saw straight away, as beloved as Joe Hart was, that he wasn't the man for the job and Ederson is now very much the main man. So what Danny Murphy says is De Gea is a fantastic goalkeeper, irrespective of the two glaring errors against Brentford. But he's not comfortable enough on the ball. Ederson at City, Allison at Liverpool, they are technical enough to play the right pass, but they also know when to play it and crucially when not to play it. 
And I suppose that was the um, issue with De Gea's pass to Ericsson yesterday, that it was uh, Ericsson who lost the ball, but De Gea should never have given them uh, the ball. So Danny Murphy has a kind of just, uh, it's like a side column there away from the bigger picture stuff, just saying to add to United's list of woes, that goalkeeper is not going to cut it. And he mentions as well, Brentford uh, ran 8.6 miles further than Manchester United, produced 25 more sprints. So there's um, so much wrong with the situation. Eamon Sweeney looks at uh, Ten Hag. And again, everybody is aware of the bigger picture and the Glazers and the mismanagement under Ed Woodward. You know, it was a big part of this. I mean, money has been spent, but just spent so badly. And Eamon Sweeney's looking back on Ten Hag's... um, tenure at Ajax and starting to wonder so he says uh, Dutch football cuts a pretty modest figure in Europe these days ranked 7th by UEFA behind Portugal just ahead of Austria and Scotland and he said Ajax and Ten Hag's European performances have been underwhelming since Spurs beat them in that Champions League semi-final in 2019 so the following season they were eliminated in the group stages and then they were beaten by Getafe in the Europa League round 32 and then the year after that which was 2020-21 again missed out in qualification from the group stages then Roma beat them in the Europa League quarter-final last year they did get through the group stages in the Champions League but they were beaten by Benfica in the round of 16 and uh, they held off PSV in the league by two points which Eamon Sweeney says hardly constitutes an awe-inspiring achievement either so it won't be long to me when you start seeing those kind of uh, pieces unfairly or otherwise it won't be long before there's significant pressure on Ten Hag which is again probably unfair and Eamon Sweeney in, in the opening paragraph, I think, captured the, the big question, you know, um, when he says, is Eric Ten Hag is the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time? And then he goes on to list what you've outlined there. Uh, it was interesting watching Ten Hag yesterday. First of all, I would disagree with some of his comments after the game. You know, he's the manager of the team and it's his job to fix the team with the hand he's dealt. OK, so and coming out and making comments about, you know, the players were rubbish, the players had a plan. Um, I just felt to myself, if he's trying to get this team into, into a set system, is he's got to lead them in that sense. And when you look at Ten Hag and you compare him to, you know, a Tuchel or a Guardiola or a Klopp as, you know, or a Conte, he just seems to lack presence. And, I, you know, maybe the fact that Ajax have struggled in the last number of years has dented his confidence, but he just doesn't have any presence. And I just felt to myself watching the game yesterday and, you know, that at stages... They just look rudderless. And, you know, Danny Murphy's point about, you know, the goalkeeper, you know, playing off. I mean, I, I remember watching games where Liverpool where Allison missed kick balls, you know, from, from the back. Because keepers make mistakes. But the big thing is, if Ten Hag wants them to play a certain style of, uh, of football, Eamon Sweeney's question is, is he the right man for the job? In the, or is Because Paul McGrath in the Sunday World talks about, you know, Ten Hag should go to the board and say, I want a four-year plan. Now, if you're a Man United fan, I'm not sure, you know, or a shareholder of United, I'm not sure a four-year plan is what you want to be hearing, you know, for a club of its stature. Um, I heard a Gary Neville interview on Sky afterwards, and he's talking about the stadium crumbling, that, you know, the stadium needs investment and that the training grounds need investment. So all the talk coming out of United from past players and a lot of the media, not just today, but over the last sort of 18 months to two years, is, a, is one of a shambolic environment. From the ownership right down to, to the players. Um, Jose Marina came out this week and said his best uh, managerial achievement ever was having United finish second uh, to Liverpool a number of years ago in the, in, in the context of, uh, of that season. So there's just not a good messaging coming out of United at the moment. It looks like it's broken. Mm. It looks like it's broken from the top. And Ten Hag 
in, in the short term, and it's hard to judge a guy after two games because you can, as Kieran said, 30 years ago they lost their first game and went on to win the league, but they got a marquee signing, obviously, in Eric Cantona. It's just hard to see, you know, um, is he like a rabbit caught in headlights? You know, is this something that, you know, he came out with a, with a, a disciplinary plan, which I would fully support and agree with as a manager. You know, he talked about Ronaldo. Ronaldo didn't train all um, pre-season, and yet he started in the second game back and came on at halftime last week. So if you're a manager of any team or any sport, and, and you set out your stall to say, this is what we're going to do, then you have to have the courage to follow it through. And, you know, I think Eamon Sweeney's point is, poor Ten Hag is the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. And for me, he's lacking the courage to follow through in the early stages what he wants from this team. Yeah. Front page of Sunday Times, he maintains his tactics weren't at fault. You can have a good plan and then you can put the plan in the bin. It was nothing to do with the tactics. We need more hunger on the pitch as individuals and as a team. And then he was asked about Martinez, who he substituted at five foot nine. He is struggling thus far. I mean, he may well go on to have a great career. And it is odd the way his height is talked about so much in light of players like Cannavaro and, and numerous others. But certainly he is struggling so far in the league. And he said, uh, I'm not I could I sub three players because he took him off at halftime. I sub three players. I could have changed them all. But um, to be fair, Kieran, I heard you coming in there. It was interesting even pre-game that Karen Carney and Jamie Redknapp and Gary Neville and Sky were all slightly worried about the fact that Brentford had size and United had none and there are still certain fundamentals in the game even as advanced and sophisticated as, as it's become. Yeah, and look, what I found interesting there's a paragraph in Eamon Sweeney's piece where he mentioned where Martinez is in the pecking order in Argentina in the centre-halves. You know, that he's basically fourth or fifth in the pecking order there. So right he's, away... He like spent that, 60 million sterling on him. Yeah, yeah. And this is the thing where this has been a Ten Hag signing. You know, sometimes the signing is given to you, um, but this was a, t- a Ten Hag signing. So right away, this is... Look, if we remember, there was a time when De Gea was a good player. But he started precariously. Mm. But Ferguson said, this is our guy we're going with. But I, I thought what was interesting about that opening line from Eamon was often you hear that term that they're the right man at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's interesting he said he's the wrong man. I, I think they have to go with him now. But I will say, I find it amazing about Man United fans. Oh, and even Andy Mitten was on with you, Joe, earlier in the week, correct? Yeah, and I did I, say I, to him I, on that Monday, we're not going to start every Monday with Man United. So yeah, yeah. A week yeah was, it on, was, it, was it Andy Mitten or Daniel Harris? It was one of the boys who was Andy on Mitten. with you. And he was talking about how... Let's not talk about Spurs. Like Spurs have done nothing in the last 30 years. And he was being snotty about, let's say, what you were making about Conte. Whatever about Conte, how did Manchester United, Manchester United knock off for Pochettino? Because they're sneering that the guy lost the Champions League final or Spurs did only came second and didn't win it out. And like that, if Man United would bite their hand off to be where Pochettino had Spurs within two mm. years. Yeah. That was the obvious call, but it's because they just said, well, we're Man United, we win titles. Pochettino is just another Spurs manager who couldn't win it. And, you know, you asked for it, you got it. And th- that hubris is a big part of the problem at Manchester United from, from the supporters, the entitlement. I mean, the, Timmy's there, but it takes a four-year. Klopp said that at his first press conference in Liverpool, He's talking about, yeah, maybe in four years' time. You know, it's it's the, it's a natural cycle, but it's a progression. And Pochettino was ideally placed. He knew the league. He had a proven CV. He's won his titles now in PSG, whatever, you know, not as good a work as he did at Spurs. But you said he, the man couldn't win trophies. He's won trophies. 
So how they have continuously got the run, man, when, like, obviously there was Guardiola, they messed up on that. Klopp, they missed out on that. They've missed out on Pochettino. And now that they have, they've got to go with Ten Hag for the next three years at least. No, they do. I guess the worrying thing, because if you missed uh, Redknapp and Neville, in a sense... Neville was talking big picture. This is about the Glazers. This is a decade of mismanagement. And Redknapp was saying, I don't think either were wrong. Redknapp was saying, mm-hmm. those players have to take responsibility. You can't, as a player, stand over your team running 15 kilometres less than the opposition. And I suppose where Redknapp's point does you know, have a, a fair degree of credence over Neville's is that like, this wasn't Man City or Liverpool or Real Madrid who had beaten Manchester United. This was Brentford. They have spent a billion quid. And that'd be the worry with Ten Hag. You know, fair enough. Monday night against Liverpool, you'd fully expect Liverpool to win and win comfortably. But the Ten Hag couldn't spark something, even work right, enough to get over the line against Brentford or Brighton. That's where you instantly start to get a bit worried about what he's bringing to the party, that he hasn't managed to spark anything in this team. And Joe, yeah. on that point, it's very important. Paul McGrath calls that point out. He says, in his time at United in the Sunday world, he says, we won very little. But we tried every game, he says. You know, we put every effort in, he says. We gave 100%. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I, I, I've, I've always said, show me who your leader is and I'll tell you a lot about your team or your business. And, you know, if Ten Hag's team, you know, aren't putting the same physical or mental effort into the game, that is, it looked like yesterday, obviously, when you look at the stats of the game yesterday, you have to question what's going on in it. He talked about the team. His objective at the start of the year was the team would be fitter than ever. Yeah. Okay, that there'd be more, there'd be more effort put in than ever. And in the first two games against Brighton and yes, against Brentford, um, we haven't seen that so far. And I just think that there's a there's a big question mark about where are they, where are they going? I mean, look, they're united. They'll spend they spent a billion quid in the last ten years or whatever mm. they spent in the last seven or eight years. So you know they're going to spend money to fix this. But the problem is, you know, they're now having situations where. The best players in the world are not looking to come. Frankie de Jong has come out and said, um, apparently, that he'd prefer to go to Chelsea, you know, than United. That would never have happened five years ago. You know, United would have got, unless it was just pure money. But as regards the best players, United was a, was a venue they wanted to be at and wanted to be part of. So, again, the whole culture at United of a, a team, and Kieran talked about their, their entitlement, but the whole culture is that... You know, you can have all the entitlement you want, but you must do it when it matters. Now, what I liked about Redknapp and, and Neville's discussion yesterday was they had two different agendas, as you call out, Joe. Neville was talking about the Glazers, I mean, and he's hell-bent on, on the ownership, um, where Redknapp was talking about the players and, and, and the manager. And for me, that's what you got to fix. You can have the worst owners in the world, but if you have the right culture and the right program and the right manager and, and team, like, they don't have to get on. And we'll talk later on about the, 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 the Keane era, but they don't have to get on as, as people. But they have to get on when they're on the field for the one mission. And the one mission is to make sure United get good results. And that's what is not in place at the moment. They're not all bought in to the fact that they're playing together for United. Forget all the distractions with everything else. Their job as professionals as players, is to give the best performance they can every day when they play for United. Mm. And right now, in the early part of the season, we haven't seen that. We'll press on. How much Roy Keane content is too much Roy Keane content is a question that crosses my mind increasingly. So, uh, you can blame Timmy McCarthy for this if you're sick of Manchester United talk, but to be fair, they're pretty interesting extracts. There are pages 8, 9, 10 and 11 in the Sunday Times today. Matt Dickinson, one of the Sunday Times journalists, has written a book about the treble year, 1999 
Manchester United, the treble and all that. That's the name of the book. And so there are various extracts here. I have to say, Timmy, when you first uh, WhatsApped about this, I thought, well, this isn't in the Sunday papers today because I saw this a few days ago. This was definitely doing the rounds online, but they've put it in the Sunday paper today physically. And it's an extract from the book. And it's Teddy Sheringham talking about a major bust up with Roy Keane, although he still hails Keane as the driving force in the treble winning year he says there were so many great players at United but if Keeney as he calls him Keeney didn't play we weren't the same team if he wasn't in training it wasn't the same session if you put him in he'd be snarling and snapping at you on your team and if you put him in the opposition he'd be having a go at you but uh, in advance of making those points he talks about a major falling out they had and really I mean it's the definition of over nothing I don't think they were bosom buddies at Nottingham Forest admittedly but uh, it's 1998 Eric Harrison, the club's uh, revered youth coach, is retiring, so there's a night out for all the players. Uh, Roy Keane is still on his year out after that cruciate injury, and they've a solid night of drinking, and they're being dropped off in uh, Cheshire. And as Sheringham says, we're all pretty pissed, not overly, but had a few drinks, not smashed pissed. So uh, there's a, like they're sharing a metric of uh, how much uh, drink you've had there. All in a minibus. We're coming back to where we got uh, picked up from. I'm sitting behind the driver. Keeney was next to the driver. Steve Bruce next to me. Pallister. Dennis Irwin. Couple of others. Bit of banter flying about. And then out of nowhere, the mood darkened. This is a quote. All of a sudden, Keeney said, why don't you F off back to London in your effing red Ferrari and your penthouse? Sheringham recalls, I went, what? And he says, yeah, F off back to London. The row quickly escalated. I'm like, this is Sheringham, I'm like, are you coming for me, Keeney? And on they go. And then he says, Keane jumped around, still with his bad leg. He got me by the tie, pulled me towards him, grappling with him. Suddenly everyone's going, what's going on? And they're pulling us apart. The rest of the players had to stop a brawl erupting in the minibus. Uh, separating the two men, they told Sheringham to leave it. They said Keane was drunk and would forget about it in the morning. Sheringham says, I'm saying no, what's going on, Keeney? Let's have it out. Why are you snapping at me? I haven't said anything to you. Uh, the minibus door slides open Keane stomps away Sheringham heads home adrenaline pumping writes Matt Dickinson I couldn't sleep that night thinking it's going to go off as soon as I get into training I've seen Roy in the, gym, in the gym so I know it can go off I've got to get myself ready was Sheringham's thoughts and then he pitches up the next morning for training Keane is uh, a booth or two down from him in the dressing room he's braced for something and he says Keane gets up and walks out he didn't say a word to me he didn't say a word to me for the next three and a half years. Matt Dickinson says, Matt Dickinson says, sorry, what? You were teammates until 2001. He must have said something to you in that time. Sheringham says, nothing, absolutely nothing. He didn't speak to me for uh, three straight years. And then uh, later on in the piece, long after they'd finished playing, the two men bumped into each other at a charity match. Keane shook hands as if nothing had happened, which only made it even more baffling. I'd always love Keane. He loved him as a man, what he stands for. He's very outspoken at the moment and everyone loves that. But I know him as a person. I love his drive, his leadership. Funny lad as well, comically. So I was disappointed that that had happened because I'd never slagged him off. I didn't want to be upset and fall out, but that was the way he was going to be. He's obviously got a real problem with me. Everyone else at the time was saying, don't worry, he's an effing idiot. I couldn't understand it. So there you are. Roy Keane and Teddy Sheringham. Timmy, you picked so this out. Yeah, so Joe, well, first of all, you know, the, the four pages, I mean, talk, in the first two talk about Keane, really, and, and, and that Sherryham incident, and then the, the, the next two pages talk about uh, Ferguson, which we'll come on to. But what I really liked about the piece was not just the fact that, you know, the Roy Keane um, situation with Sherryham in, 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 in a drunken brawl late at night was the fact that it showed how tight they were on the pitch. 
Here was a group of people who didn't get on. And obviously, Sherry makes the point. Other players didn't like Keane as well. He talked about, you know, um, Schmeichel was mentioned in, in the second piece on this. And uh, that didn't get on with, with Keane and Alexis. But what I thought was brilliant about, you know, that Man United team. And again, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm not a Man United fan. But what I was brilliant was, whether they liked each other or not, they had the ability to perform together on the pitch. And here's a situation where Sherriam calls up for three and a half years, Keane, and never spoke to Sherriam. And yet on the pitch, Keane drove him on and, and Sherriam and himself, he went on to win a lot of titles in, in that period. And I just thought to myself, you know, if you put Ferguson and Keane and all the players together, it's likely that mo- many of them didn't get on with each other, particularly with the Keane and, and Ferguson, I would say. And yet they had a, the, the ability, and Ferguson had, had the courage as a leader to bring it all together and to get the best out of each of them, even though there was obviously a lot of dislike between each of them. So it wasn't about Roy Keane in, in the sense of what he said to Sherriam. And um, I, I did think the fact that the three and a half years was actually scary. I mean, that he never spoke for three and a half years. I did think that was actually scary. But I just thought the fact that they managed to put all that aside when they crossed the white line and delivered the best for Man United was a spectacular achievement. When you read it now, you know, like 23 years on from when it all happened. Kieran, seemingly a nothing incident and Sheringham totally taken aback by it and then silence for three and a half years. What does that tell you about Roy Keane? Yeah, like it, it's it's an amazing dynamic. I mean, look, Teddy Sheringham comes across as an affable guy, but this was new news to me. Like it's it's well documented that Teddy Sheringham and Andy Cole didn't get on. So now all of a sudden you're looking at two teammates that didn't have great time for Teddy. But it, it's it, like the wider point, look, Roy obviously had huge strengths as well and we've got to talk about like Roy and he, he touched on it in his own book and look echoes of this came up with um, in Saipan but after that season uh, that was the season there we're talking about where uh, Roy uh, did his cruise ship famously challenging Alfinga Halland um, or Alfinga Halland in the, in the penalty box and after that Roy didn't drink essentially and like it, what's interesting to tell that they didn't speak for four years. Now they didn't, they weren't at each other's throat again for the next four years. They just didn't speak. So that was a that was a way of nearly Roy mellowing to a point. I just feel Roy's leadership style. We've got to we've got to put this in context. Like le- leadership, that a lot of that you you cannot win a championship like that. No, you cannot. Like the leadership style has changed. I remember a quote when about leadership. It was around the late nineties, and they said. You know, the 20th century leadership model has been more through fear and in- intimidation. In the 21st century, it will be more through goodwill and persuasion. And you take even like Timmy, obviously, and myself both have a huge basketball background. Like you, w- you would have had like obviously infamously and early the Michael Jordan model of tough love, etc. If it was love at all there. Well, it was it was love for the for the cause. But the, and you had someone like Kobe Bryant who modeled himself so much in Jordan grappling with the, that leadership style. And then, like you, you look at the guys who are doing it now in the last ten years: LeBron James, Stephen Curry. Like those guys, it's all through goodwill, persuasion, challenging guys, particularly in LeBron's case, to a point. But like you, you take that; those Golden State Warriors won that championship because they're a brotherhood. And you look at the teams that are winning currently in Gaelic games, like those Limerick boys. Roy's way wouldn't have it wouldn't float in John, under John Kiley. You know, so we, we, we can, well, I love to hear the old yarns and 
look, obviously, Roy Keane was, and, and there was a, there was a, a side of Roy that was very good at encouraging, persuading players too. Which I'd be curious as to does that come across in the Norcroft book, or sorry, in, in the Matt Dickinson book? But um, we have to put it in context. Like yes, like to use the psychological terms, task cohesion is what really counts. Social cohesion is another point. But if you have good social cohesion and you, you look at the Irish team in the 80s in, in a similar era, Jack Charlton's, because they were such a brotherhood, that social cohesion led to task cohesion. And to win now, you have to have both. Mm. Very last uh, excerpt from this Matt Dickinson book, then Serenz Ferguson and it's the summer of 1998, so that World Cup summer, Arsenal have obviously done the double. You'll remember that year and Anelka was in the scene and Arsene Menger was unearthing player after player that nobody had heard of and they turned out to be superstars. And so, uh, well, it's quite a dramatic line. We're worried about your focus. Alex Ferguson could hardly believe his ears. It was June 1998. The most successful manager at work in the game had been on holidays and he was brought back and he was in a discussion with Martin Edwards in London, who was United's chairman, and Sir Roland Smith was chairman of the club's PLC board. And uh, they were saying they didn't think his eye was on the prize. As Edwards told me, says Matt Dickinson, and he still has the paperwork to refresh the memory, there was talk of Ferguson revelling in, quote, celebrity status. Was his growing passion as a racehorse owner jump, uh, impinging on his work? I mean, the racehorse situation, actually, they weren't a million miles off the... Uh, <laughs> off an issue there in a, at a future point but they uh, were worried about his increasing interest in racehorse ownership Edwards told Ferguson the board feared he'd taken his eye off the ball uh, leading to a disappointing season and they said Brian Kidd is taking the majority of the sessions was Ferguson leaving uh, a vacuum and so in effect Ferguson flips out and uh, they also say they doubt that Dwight York is the man York uh, was obviously a Ferguson target that he did eventually get and was essential in winning the treble but they weren't sure about York and Ferguson was saying well who's who's not sure about York and they said Brian Kidd who's the bloody manager Ferguson asked and Kidd preferred John Hartson apparently <laughs> Hartson spluttered Ferguson are you serious <laughs> uh, not surprisingly Brian Kidd and Alex Ferguson didn't survive much beyond uh, mm. this point and uh, well Ferguson heads back to France and Edwards is instructed by Smith to put the contents of the meeting in writing, which he did. And then when Ferguson got back from holiday, the letter was sent to Ferguson. The language Edwards said had softened then and they, they, you know, commended Ferguson on his youth policy and for doing a great job. But concerned again about the absence of a trophy, the warning over outside interest and parents' focus and an instruction to be cautious when speaking to the media so as not to fuel criticism of the PLC board being stingy about transfers. Uh, Ferguson flips out that day. He comes into Martin Edwards' office and he says, I am resigning. And Edwards, in fairness, calls his bluff beautifully, you would have to say. And he says, well, if that's the way you feel, we'll have to accept it. And later that day, Ferguson phones back to withdraw his resignation. Uh, Matt Dickinson says at the end of the piece, Edwards believes he deserves credit for having the balls to challenge Ferguson. So uh, there you go. The treble wouldn't have happened without this meeting if you're uh, Martin Edwards. So... There you go. Pretty interesting, Timmy. You picked yeah. that out as well. Yeah, I picked it out, Joe, because it's it's a great insight into what goes on, you know, in professional sport and you know stuff that we would never be aware of. You know that you know that the chairman of a club is calling the manager in because of Arsenal's success the year before, uh, and what looks like, as you say, Wenger unearthing talent after talent, and a, a dynasty could be brewing down in Highbury at the time in that sense. 
and they talk about his focus. I mean, about his focus. And yet, you know, Ferguson said at one stage, he said he would later reflect if he'd been younger and more headstrong, my pride and temper would, wouldn't have allowed me to tolerate such a farce at that, the original meeting. But Edwards called his bluff. Um, and yet they went on that season to win the treble. So what I loved about the piece was just how it took us through, you know, you know what looked like, you know, a, 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 a match made in heaven with Ferguson. And you had at that point in time um, what was going on behind the scenes and, you know, the, the tension that goes on between chairman and, and managers in, in a football sense. Um, even the comment about the PLC, don't be making a point about the PLC board being stingy because of the impact that can have in a, in, in, a, in a commercial sense. And what I loved about it was just that, you know, it showed Ferguson, you know, as a tough man. Uh, in, 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 and then all of a sudden it showed, you know, maybe a little bit of weakness in that, you know, he threatened to resign. And I've always said to people in business over the years, Joe, and uh, never give ultimatums because people will call you a bluff on them. And the, the, as you said, um, Edwards really smartly called his bluff on that. Um, United fans would be happy that Fergie decided to back down and stay because they went down and won the treble. But it was just a nice insight into, you know, a brilliant season for United. And yet at the start of it, you know, how difficult tensions were at, at that top level. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's say, uh, yeah, final word, Karen. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just, it's a good sign of the book, you know, like that it's not good by Matt Dickinson. It comes out on Thursday and it's obviously worth a read because I suppose what you'd be afraid of and just this trap with nostalgia and like it seems so hackneyed, just, you know, United and the treble. We, we can, this is given an insight. He's got new stuff, as Timmy says, it's given us behind the scenes stuff that we didn't know that would come to the surface. So, th- like, that is. No, none of us knew that. We, we thought the only time that Alex Ferguson had been challenged on uh, his passion for horse racing was by Roy around 2003. So this is um, this is gold, and it seems like Dickinson's done a great job to give us a fresh insight into what an old story. So um, it sounds like it's a great bit of journalism, and um, looking forward to reading it. As a, I mean, an obsessive Man United fan at that time, I did think to myself when I saw this book, I thought, oh, God, there's nothing I don't know about this situation. I don't need to see it. But the excerpts are uh, pretty good in fairness. So uh, I suspect that book's going to do pretty well. Uh, let's turn away then from Manchester United. I mean, blame Timmy McCarthy. You can get after him on Twitter if you hate Manchester United and you've endured the last uh, 25 minutes. It's all his fault. <laughs> so uh, page 10 of the Sunday Independent. This is going to get very tired, I think. Like, there has to be almost a line in the sand where GA writers are just going to have to stop talking about the split season and what we're uh, missing. But it's understandable for the present moment. This is Colin O'Rourke, the Mead manager. How much longer will the Mead manager keep writing in the Sunday Independent, by the way, do we think, Kieran? Yeah, no, I, I thought, I didn't expect to see him in today. Um, no, it's actually a decent piece. Yeah. Um, but, it, like, you take Tomas Shea. Like he was doing great stuff for the Daily Indo, uh, but once he went in as assistant manager with um, Mahan, obviously he just and, and and they're not a top contender, um, but he obviously felt it was a conflict of interest and um, hasn't been doing the column since. So maybe I, I'd say when it gets up and running, um, Cullum will not be regular um, if at all. Um, he might be the occasional spot columnist, but I I, I don't think it will be sustainable but I think this piece works because Colm is he sees it from all ends yeah. including being a club manager himself so there's some valid points in his I think Philip Lanigan though really nailed it because 
It's what are the J doing with well, the vacuum? If you, still if you, if you don't mind, Kieran, just because I'm conscious, like nobody has read these pieces potentially, or they're they're mm-hmm. just getting so. It, in effect, to uh, briefly sum up, Conor O'Rourke, he's talking about the split season. And he's saying uh, January and February is the most god-awful time to be playing football. The quieter months of the year, October, November, much better weather-wise. The season needs to be rescheduled with a later start. Uh, Naturally, I have a personal interest now and I hate the cold. Someone needs to push the dial forward a month away from storms and tempests. Uh, He touches on the standard of the season briefly. He says in terms of uh, the standard of football, it was a year which was a little underwhelming. The idea of winning the All-Ireland is still confined to an exclusive club of Division 1 teams. Uh, he talks about the All-Ireland final a little bit two standout performances saved it Clifford and Shane Walsh otherwise he um, didn't think it was of a great standard so as for the split season jury's still out Uh, he says the early evidence is that there's no need for such an early start and such an early end to the inter season because uh, counties are only starting their club championships around now, despite most being out of the championship for two months. The exodus to the US took on biblical proportions this year, and there are many clubs in the land of the free that are much stronger than any county in Ireland, with the possible exception of Dublin. He's talking about US clubs there. Uh, large parts of some county squads have hitched up for the summer in places like New York, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Diego, San Francisco. Uh, he says, what is happening now is the movement of players on an industrial scale when counties are knocked out and the early championship finish here is now facilitating that mass movement. So he says, um, the GA does not own players, but the question needs to be asked whether there's any need for the All-Ireland to be so early when counties are not going to start club championship until August, no matter when their team goes out. It makes far more sense to start the league a month later and finish the All-Ireland a month later. And he said... Uh, the current split season concept needs a rethink. So that's Colin O'Rourke. And then, sorry, you were talking about uh, Philip Lanigan. So he sort of picks up the baton. Yeah, I mean, just to finish on Colin, I think I do agree that the National League starts too early and it's played in shocking weather the, the first couple of rounds. And it's going to be all the more problem because of the amount of games that are coming in with the new championship next year. So I do see a situation, ideally, where maybe the league starts a couple of weeks later and you could possibly go into where one of the All-Ireland men's All-Irelands are being played this weekend, you know. but So it could go out another two weeks. Um, but in general, I think this, like the, the notion of America, like the important thing is like last month, at least guys were playing the game in good weather and now championship is starting in August and people know, like it's been said that um, they could have been playing with their clubs in county championship the last month. Guys weren't sure when they were booking those holidays if their team would be, if their county would still be in the championship. At least now everybody can know, look, the whole thing doesn't really go till August. So you can book your holidays in July. And because it, it has been a nightmare for families. I, I Like I am here in Clare and I, I remember like working with one team in Clare and I remember... The, the manager had identified the first week of August he could go on holiday with his family. because And what, lo and behold, Claire were knocked out in the championship. And what way, what was, what date was the first round? The guy was flying back and forth from Portugal away from his family. That, that, that now does not happen. It was so anti-family what happened. So I think that, that notion of let, let the guys go to America, they need to, 
de-stress, particularly if you were playing after COVID for the average club player and for the county boys after they need a bit of blowout time after being on the treadmill for the last six months at county level. So this won't be typical of every year. So that's on that. Philip Lanigan's point is he's on about basically, yeah, we've the club season now. There's a lot of talk about profile. Tony Kelly, I'm going to his game at three o'clock. Tony Kelly will be playing at three o'clock today. Right? All these club players that, that were clamouring about that, why aren't we seeing them in Crow Park? They are playing right now. But his point is, is the J are being laissez-faire and they're just leaving it to the counties and the local press possibly to promote the games. Then why don't they have a strategy as to how they can promote it? You know, like, so he has very good points here that, you know, they're just, don't just leave it up to the individual counties or clubs to do the same on a local ad hoc basis. Instead, the first protocol for anyone logging on to the association's website would be hard-pressed to know that the club game exists, never mind is in full swing. And it can't be just about passing the book to the counties themselves. You know, he said he compares it to in rugby. If you look that up, you know exactly what's going on in All-Ireland club game, All-Ireland League club games, etc. So, like, they could, like, identify. There are some great games going on. Like, I was just even there seeing on, on Twitter last night, you had a shootout between Brian Hurley and Luke Connolly, Nemo and Castlehaven. That's not just a Cork thing. Like, that was a that, that was a cracking game, 313 to 116. They're, they've been two of the top three teams with the Bears in Cork over the last four years. Today, you have Austin Stacks and... Uh, Cairns O'Rahillies, who had 12,000 at a county final last December, playing in a in a in the Kerry Club Championship, like massive games, like that, that that as in would would be able to attract a national audience if the GAA identified so if, and were a bit more creative. Whereas it just seems to be, well, lads, we're off, right? And five months down, and we'll send out the fixtures again in January when the National League is being played, as Cullum says, in the wind and the storms and. So it's a, it's, a, it's a valid point. I think it, I think this had to be tried, Joe. I remember you and I being on in April. So we're getting this in August. Do you remember that club month they tried? And yeah. I remember being up with you and said, are we going to go into this again? Mm. And I remember you saying, until they actually split and guys are nearly county players and guys are club players, thank God Tony Kelly doesn't have to choose between Bellier or Clare. Mm. We have it now. Let's, so let's just give it a chance. But the J have to give it its best chance and look to promote it, rather than just leaving it to TG Cahir showing the Wexford County Finals today and being ad hoc. I think Philip's point, Philip's article makes some very good points on that. So the headline is, where's the backup? And after boldly pushing for the split season, the GA now seem happy to just sit back and let it run out. And look, in fairness, I couldn't disagree with them on the GA.ie point. It should be laid out well there. But beyond that, there's no obvious idea as to how to promote this. And... I just think the reality is, Kieran, that not enough people care about the club matches and I don't know how you get them to do that. I don't think promote like when there's no there's no great idea here, like in, it, with the greatest respect to the piece, because I think it's a it's a very well written piece and it's it's a good point about the GEA website. But like GEA.ie is not going to promote a club game like I don't go on to GEA.ie on an average week. I'd say most people don't. Is there not just a reality here that the club game is never going to capture the national imagination. I mean, I'm not quite saying it's that old adage of who cares about a club game, two towns. I think there's more interest. I think there's more interest in it than just two towns. But I mean, these games were on RTE, for instance, right across last autumn and winter and often in very good slots, you know, some of them after the Ireland-New Zealand win. And, and a lot of the, the viewing figures uh, were desperately poor 
And I just think a, the majority of people are not that interested in the majority of club games. And for me, that's okay. It's a participation sport. And this pressure to like elevate the club game into something which is going to have the whole country gripped and have viewing figures of 250,000 plus, I think it's a fool's errand. I really don't think it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's not going to be like for like, that, that's a given. But, but not even like for like, like I think trying to do a piece during the week or like, you know, we, we're always on the lookout for pieces in the show or newspapers are like, it's very, mm-hmm. the way you're selling the game is Tony Kelly. It has to be more than just one player. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you sell a game in a club championship to a national audience? I think it's very difficult. I'm, I'm sort of defending the GA here. I don't. I think they've made this move for better or worse to facilitate the participants and the local community. And for me, that's great. But like trying to say, oh, you need to promote it more. This needs to be. This needs to be big, and this needs to have big figures and and, and grabbing the national attention. I don't see it. I really. I, I think. I, I think it's so unlikely. I still think that there's a medium, but I take your point that obviously David Clifford playing for um, Kerry is going to be a bigger draw than him playing for Fasser, sure, right? Sure. But even like we're, we're talking about basketball, like there, like there was viral there on um, NBA Twitter. LeBron James went and played in basically a summer league, the Drew League, and it like it was massively followed because it was LeBron James playing. And we, the J, like that's a fascinating dynamic. Like you could have an early uh, a Clifford watch. Now it's not the J's way. Basketball is kind of way, way osmosis anyway, but it was it was particularly from the, the, the their Crow Park that we market the stars. And uh, like, like you, it'd be like Clifford is just like it's a fascinating dynamic. No, okay, I accept, I accept Clifford, but say, gonna, yeah. say, you, say you take Clifford away and one or and the two or three others, your standard club match. How are you selling that, really, to the masses? I, I think it's an undue pressure on on clubs and the GA. And, and to look, do that. I, I mentioned a, a, an NBA, and it, like I did always find like this argument that. Uh, oh, it's it's such a gap between the start of the National League and the All-Irelands when a lot of the big sport, apart from the Premier League or, or, or soccer, where it is a 10 and a half month mm. season early between everything, a lot of the other sports, it is understand, understandable that it's seasonal. I suppose what's just an adjustment for everyone is that this we, we'd, we'd be doing an All-Ireland semi-final there, Joe, or... Yeah this weekend that would be the big thing it's just it's just an adjustment it's at a different time I, I just think that there is something in that and look I, I just think that it's it's an adjustment period and they had to go with it I agree with you like they've identified that this is participation time Yeah. and the diehards I just think that there are diehards who it's not going to get the casual viewer the way that the Intercounty watching the All-Ireland will but I think even JA people who, who are into their guy and would still like their fix mm. are tending to only get it in their own county when actually, you know, there are places and the guy could play a bit more of help. But but there's it's, there's openings for media to be more creative, albeit you're right. It's not the, it, it would be a hard sell to think like it's like it is like inter-county. Yeah. No, they could, I, I totally agree with George's Philip's point, point and, and your point that GA could do more even to facilitate uh, diehard's interest, but sorry, Timmy, come in. We're 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 tossing this around between us. Yeah, just, no, just just one point uh, on that, and on, on, I suppose the two pieces. And there's also a piece by Pat Valan actually in the Sunday World where he actually makes a recommendation. He gives a recommendation how to deal with the split season, which is basically that um, a different type of split season with which inter with intercounty football and club hurling be played February, March, April, May, and June. 
and inter-county hurling and club football being played in July, August, September, October. So he gives a, a, a different version. I, I thought for me, that, that, that just the point has moved on to the, the impact of the club game versus the inter-county, and that will never happen. I mean, club is local, club is parochial, club is within its own confines in that sense. Um, I was involved a couple of years ago with St. Bridges here in Kiltoom, Um and it was brilliant, brilliant for the parish. We aren't, we aren't to win the county. So there's a great, there's a great localness in, in, in that sense. And, you know, but the GA could definitely, you know, even in their website, just have, you know, a bit more relevance in, in that. I want to pick up on Colin Rooks, going back to his one. No, I just thought there was a very interesting line. And he said, this All-Ireland final was a very civilised sporting occasion. And then he went on to give his view about it being a civilised final, about the atmosphere on the day. And, I just didn't understand that. Maybe that's coming from um, a Mead man who, in, in in his time, were a very tough and physical team in that sense. So, um, Columns seemed that the, the all Ireland final was probably too civilised from his point of view. But as regards the club um, split, I mean, uh, in the county split, it's happened. Um, they will tweak it, a bit like they tweaked the championship over the years when they went to back door, the, you know, and then the back doors became, you know, super Sunday. So they will tweak it more. But you cannot expect um, to get the same media exposure that even Kieran talked about in LeBron playing in the summer league, you know, um, because it's it's just a different ethos in, in, in the NBA in that sense. But it'd be nice to see Clifford or Tony Kelly or you know oh, yeah. or guys like that on occasion on a Sunday. But would I really on on a Sunday change my whole day to watch that? Where I would change it to watch North Ireland in the county final or uh, holding a football in that sense. So I think it has really. Uh, exposed the gap between inter-county and club. I think that's what this split season has done. From a, a, a neutral's point of view, from an interest point of view, from a media point of view, the gap has just been exposed. That the reality is that, you know, GA now is, even though we talk about it being a club game, mm. but from a, from a neutral point of view, it is about the inter-county scene. Um, and the club will flourish in its own world. Yes, oh, totally. And I, I think that, that that is the beauty of this new system is that like it's a lovely thought that the Wexford final is happening today in beautiful sunshine as opposed to buried and, and the stress caused to players with holidays being cancelled in the old system. Um, there's, look, there definitely is more. We've covered it. We've yeah. covered it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, flicking through the uh, papers then, because the clock is slowly but surely uh, coming against us. For instance, Sunday Independent, Paul Kimmage uh, listened to Bradley Wiggins' recent interview on Lance Armstrong's uh, podcast and was slightly bemused at how they're good buddies now, uh, which certainly wasn't the case when you looked at their public dispatches from um, Wiggins in particular when uh, Armstrong's cheating was first emerged so uh, it seemed they were getting on just fine thanks for having me on you're a legend love the show fascinating Sir Bradley thank you so much that's on uh, page 15 of the Sunday Independent uh, Tommy Conlon comes to the issue which certainly the IRFU dealt with during the week uh, identity question must be answered and Tommy is talking obviously ultimately here about the IRFU decision to ban transgender women from contact uh, rugby in this country, which follows a World Rugby directive which was first announced in 2020 and that was at elite level and World Rugby asked the various unions to decide what they were doing at a local level. And so the IRFU have followed the English Rugby Union, made a similar decision about a month ago and several other unions as well. And uh, really what World Rugby have done there, I mean, it's similar. The the International Olympic Committee have asked various bodies to make their own decisions. I mean, one person's passing the book is uh, handing responsibility to the uh, various sporting bodies. But that's what's happening at the Olympics. And so uh, Tommy Conlon is saying whole new swathes of the human population suddenly wake up to find themselves being 
branded as transphobic before they even know what the word means or before they've ever set eyes on a trans woman or trans man. Uh, he talks about at times the jargon used itself can is, uh, becomes a tool that can be used to intimidate the mainstream, the general population that suddenly finds itself unsure of what to think or what to say for fear of causing offence. Uh, he talks about a recent, and I'm not going to, I mean, names are, you, you, the names are freely available here, but um, I don't really want to make it about any one person. But certainly this issue uh, came up in Ladies Gaelic Football in the last uh, week or two when there was uh, a picture of a transgender player playing against uh, another team. And uh, Tommy Collins says the image is unsettling. It is a man competing against a girl. There is an obvious mismatch in height, strength and physical power and I know the LGFA have um, announced that they are going to uh, look at their rules on this issue. But Tommy goes on to quote uh, Helen Joyce, who's a senior editor at The Economist, and uh, she's addressed the issue in all of its complexity in her book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. And so what she says in that book is a novel belief system is upending the legal and societal order from education and sports to criminal justice and employment law. It has both fed off and worsened political polarisation. Uh, Tommy goes into a bit more detail on the match uh, between Nigel Araka, the GA's first dedicated LGBTQ plus club against Ballyboden St. Enders. And in the end, uh, the player in question was substituted at the behest of the referee, it seems. And then Tommy um, mentions uh, Kelly Maloney, Maloney, who was uh, Frank Maloney, the boxing promoter. And uh, Kelly gives a very frank account of just how uh, difficult it is to transition and how, um, uh, you know, awful a situation it is to find yourself in. And it's, it's not an undertaking that anybody um, proceeds with lightly. And uh, Tommy says that uh, you would imagine the overwhelming majority of decent people have a live and let live attitude these days. People by and large are compassionate and thoughtful. In this country, we've been educated over the last five decades across a range of issues from gay rights to divorce to reproductive autonomy. One would imagine the same public spirit will apply to transsexual people and those suffering from gender dysmorphia in general. Apart from anything else, the numbers involved are a tiny fraction of the overall population, less than 1% according to some statistics. But... um, He says when it comes to sport here, he said in uh, or after prolonged uh, scientific research in 2020, world rugby eventually came to conclusion that every lay person knew intuitively it was simply too dangerous to have women who were formerly men playing rugby against conventional women. Cue the outcry from the usual sources. But the number of registered players in Ireland affected by this ruling too, and the IRFU made contact with both to explain the ruling and to reassure them that there was still a welcome for them in the game. And uh, he notes that Martina Narvadolova initially had um, tweeted about this issue in 2018 and said, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. The backlash was so widespread and ferocious, she deleted the tweet. She went away and did a lot of research. She came back, she said, more convinced than ever of her original position. However you see yourself, this is how I will speak to you and about you to other people. But when it comes to sport, that's about biology, not feelings. So... I guess Tommy's trying to take a, 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 an overall, an overarching look at uh, the situation and, and the Helen Joyce book that he quotes at length throughout the piece is not specifically about sport, it's about uh, society at large. But certainly this issue has landed on sport's door. I guess you saw from the LGFA uh, now examining or re-examining its transgender rules, sport probably is, has been caught a little bit 
um, on the on the hoof on this issue, and we're seeing uh, various bodies like World Rugby try to uh, grapple with it. For instance, I mean, it is ultimately there's a degree of judgment call about it because uh, World Triathlon voted just the other month to allow transgender women to keep competing, whereas British Triathlon have a different ruling, and they've they've said that's not allowed. So rugby has made its de- its decision, Kieran. Uh, predominantly, when you read the statement on uh, safety grounds, is the is the World Rugby and the IRFU reasoning? Yeah, look, the first thing to say is I, I, I find myself coming back to there's a couple of words that you just cited from Tommy that come to mind. One is complexity. The second thing is is that you know that the general population suddenly finds itself unsure of what to think or what to say for fear of cause and offence. And I think that could even speak for us here. I think there's a few things to say that, first of all, sport is for all. So like we're saying there about whether there are transgender athletes are able to compete. They have to be able to compete somewhere, first of all. That's a given. Yeah. Um, like that's the whole point of sport. Uh, it's supposed to be a coming together. To, um, but it, it like you're saying there about the the let's say a sport like rugby and it's, it's a complex one because let's say a sport like boxing has that like a lightweight can't go in, in against the heavyweight. You know, there will, there will be transgender athletes who will be smaller than even let's say, you know, someone who's playing in the line out in women's rugby. Mm. So like, like, like we're saying there about, um, that the, the line Tommy has about, you know, it's just a difference in weight height, weight, etc. Like that's natural. Like I'm, I'm only five seven. So if I play rugby or any sport, I'm going to be smaller than I, I play basketball. I, I'm smaller than most. So that's across the board. But obviously, we're talking about a biology here, and like we're not Ross Tucker here, who you've probably had on Joe. Um, but like this is a complex case, and I think there's sometimes a case for. Well, the thing about sport is you nearly have to come up with hard and fast rules for different categories, etc. But there are times where you're thinking, like if that had been, like that that example of in, in, in the ladies LGFA game, if that had been, a let's say, to use the term, more petite player, would would they have been, have to go off at halftime? Would, would that have come to the referee's attention in the same way? Hmm. So it's, it's you would suspect very, no, You would suspect no. No, so like it's 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 extremely complex. Now, what I thought is an interesting point. What Tommy said is is this is getting over proportionality. He said like how many players are we talking about currently? It's two. Mm. But look, we know by the nature that's going to be ten in two years' time or whatever. But it's it's a massively complex case. I mean, I'm just thinking in all aspects, both as a sports writer, just as a human being, a parent. I mean, there's a, there's a piece in the Sunday Times. And just in the news section about the amount of Irish teenagers who are gender reassigned are now detransitioning back. You know, they made their call too early. Mm. This is a hugely complex case. Sport is in it and sport has to have the debate and it, it has to be humane and, and non-judgmental. I know hard calls are to be made, but it has to come from that place. And um, Well, on that point, I think there is an aspect to this whereby... We live in a very complex world and certainly more right wing elements through uh, their bowl, their polling and their analytics are quickly realizing that sport is fertile ground for anti trans sentiment. We, we and, and in a way that it isn't in other areas of life. 
uh, like the workplace or society at large, but certainly trans, um, that, that, that anti-trans sentiment, they're realising, oh, in sport, we can, you know, we can, we can stir this up a bit. And, th- and that's where we're losing a humane debate, I think. And it, it's an element to this story. It's not the element, but it is an element. It's definitely been stirred on that front. And that's very tricky as well to try and extricate the debate, the debate from some of the things you're seeing online, which so clearly are just there to cause upset and to cause polarisation. But that's definitely happening at the moment. Um, Ross Tucker, who has worked with World Rugby, uh, was on the show and he talked about this at length with us in March when Leah Thomas, the swimmer, was competing and generating uh, much uh, controversy or much discussion at that stage. And, you know, he was saying that the World Rugby findings in 2020 and again, where me, you and Timmy are out of our depth is where we get too far into the uh, science of this thing. But uh, he was saying that the World Rugby finding was that there's a 20 to 30 percent higher risk of injury when a female player is tackled by someone who has gone through male puberty. And that was one of the big findings. And ultimately, testosterone suppression uh, could not undo many of the benefits of male puberty. And so for them, it was very much a, a safety issue. And um, various people have said, well, if it's just two players and, and further to your point, Kieran, that you're not a, you know, of huge stature, can we not go case by case basis? And uh, Ross Tucker is a long thread on this. Uh, World Rugby did discuss that at length, it seems, and uh, came up with various reasons as to why that wouldn't be workable. But they did contemplate case by case um, basis. And so you have maybe the slightly unsatisfactory hard and fast rule for all. And yeah, on a humane level, Timmy, I mean, it doesn't feel good to exclude anyone. No, it doesn't feel good. I thought Tommy Connolly's piece was excellent. I thought I thought he asked the question at the very start, which is yeah. identity question must be answered. I thought he put it out there at the very start that, you know, um, the, this has to be answered. What I thought was really very interesting in the piece, though, was the Kelly Maloney um, piece. I thought he actually uh, handled that very sensitively. Um, obviously, Kelly Maloney used to be the boxing promoter of Frank Maloney. Um, and he, he gave us an insight into into Kelly Maloney's mind when, when she said, what I've done is correct is something that was wrong in my birth. If I had a hole in my heart, the doctors would have done surgery as a baby because they would have seen it and I would have lived a normal life. But you can't see into the brain when you're born. So no one knows how your brain develops. And obviously I was born with a female brain and that was one of the hardest things in the world to me. It was hard for me to accept this, never mind anyone else to accept. I just thought it gave us an insight into, you know, the, the challenges that, you know, that, that someone finds themselves in, you know, who, who's born w- 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 in that situation. Mm. And yes, I, I, do, I do believe that there's a lot of, it, sport is an easy way to pick a trans. Sport is an easy way to highlight. Uh, Kieran's point earlier, if that player uh, in the game in Dublin was petite um, and not visibly different, yeah. would, would, would there have been any action? And, you know, it's it's likely that no, there wouldn't have been in that sense. But it does need to get answered because, you know, as as the world evolves, as humanity evolves, you know, um, transitioning for people will continue to evolve. And that will be just part of uh, of the world that we will live in today and, uh, and into the future. So sport does need to have an answer. And the case-by-case basis, I don't believe can work, Joe. I just think that, that you know, because then there, there, there's the the fairness or, or unfairness perceived uh, by people. So I think World Rugby have p- pitched it on safety. Mm. Um, it, whether you agree with it or not agree, they've pitched it on, on research, on data, on safety, and they've, ma- they've made a call. Mm. Uh, I didn't like the fact that they pushed the boat back then to each union, of course, and that's, you know, that's a cop-out ultimately. But, but they did make it at elite level and saying that at elite level yeah. um, we're doing it on safety. So I believe every association will, will have to grapple with this. 
I believe every association will have to make the right decision from a humane point of view, from a, uh, an individual point of view, and from safety and the sport point of view. But Tommy's question is the most um, important. The identity question must be answered. Mm. Uh, the clock has uh, rapidly come against us here. So, for instance, some pieces we picked out. Uh, Nicholas Cruz, there's a three-page spread in the Sunday Independent and he was um, such a figure in Irish boxing when Michael Cruz was winning gold at Barcelona. He was uh, over from Cuba to coach and uh, there's a brilliant interview with him in the Sunday Independent. Uh, Dan McDonnell in the Irish Independent, or the Sunday Independent rather, of the Irish Independent often is writing about the... Well, just how young the managers are, amongst other things, in these uh, European games. So of the four League of Ireland teams embarking in European competition, the managers are 38, 37, 37 and 37, which is quite something. Uh, there was a piece on the 50 year anniversary of an Irish women's team. Uh, uh, many of them worked in the Jays Fluid Factory, who did a, a footballing tour of France in 1972, a year before uh, female football got organised in this country and it's a it's a brilliant two-page piece in the Mail on Sunday. Emma Hayes' interview in page 10 of The Observer and then there's Chelsea and Nottingham Forest pieces for the Chelsea and Nottingham Forest uh, fans who are on this call. Um, Kieran, if I, if I was to ask you to talk about one of those pieces that you might want to mention to the listener, what would it be? Those? Um, well, Nicholas Cruz is, I mean, Sean McGoldrick has really delved into seeing where the, the contribution that Nicholas Cruz did and where he's at. It's a fascinating story. I suppose we'd be familiar with this piece coming up whenever it's the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary, 30th anniversary of Carruth uh, winning gold, which as he pointed out, it's it's a medal that has eluded Irish boxing, a, a male Olympic gold medal for all the success there has been. Uh, so that that's, that's an obvious one. It's a three... Uh, three-page spread and, and also Sean has a report on the current challenges and difficulties of, of the IABA again um, so the, the, that, that's the, the place that I go to Timmy, Timmy I haven't got into Mark's piece you, you read that Timmy didn't you? See that? You, you read Mark Gallagher's piece caught your eye Yeah, that was the, that was the piece that caught my eye. I just thought it was a it was a great nostalgic piece looking back at uh, fifty years ago when thirteen players set off on a tour of France and became pioneers for win, women's international soccer in Ireland, and it just told the story of you know how this group of women you know from a factory in Dublin um, and picked up a couple of players from Kilkenny and elsewhere uh, went off on this you know on on this um, journey. Uh, it's funny that they, they played four games against Reims and they w- drew two and lost two, but some players at this stage believe they lost all four. But they talk about staying in hostels which were run by nuns and bringing letters home from the nuns to people in Ireland and um, a, a man burst in one day to uh, the dressing room, uh, which is actually ironic. This guy burst into the women's dressing room, uh, asked, is anybody here from Goring? She says, no, I'm not from Goring. Um, she said, I'm from Kilkenny. So he said, that'll do. Will you dro- drop a letter back home for me? And it was a point in time, but yeah. I just think it was lovely that they, they had a get-together recently and they're going to be honoured at the uh, FAI Women's Game coming up uh, in, in the fall of the year. So I love the, the nostalgic part of it in that sense. And I thought Mark Gallagher um, captured it really nicely, you know, f- from the start to the finish. And um, he says, when they, the final piece, when they, when they take to the field to play Finland, the Irish team, in their critical qualifier in September, there'll be a group of trailblazing women in Tala who paved the way for the current generation when they toured France 50 years ago today. So it was a nice way to wrap up this on the papers for me, Joe. Yeah, for sure. For anyone watching YouTube, 
the, the, in some ways one of the best things about the piece is they have the team photo from when they went to France basically this team in France had won the unofficial Club World Cup and they wanted to promote their team so they invited over this Irish team like I said a lot of them worked in the Jays Fluid Factory and then they uh, brought in a few other good players so they've got a little reunion photo and they've got the black and white photo from 1972 so it's 50 years ago like I said a year before Irish football got properly organised Irish women's football got organised so they're sharing some stories and uh, yeah they'll be presented before the Finland game it seems to the stadium so uh, Trailblazers 50 years ago fellas were out of time as I knew we would be we didn't get to everything we wanted to but thank you so much for the time Kieran Shannon of the Irish Examiner Bonjour. Timmy McCarthy captain manager of the Irish basketball team thanks a million fellas cheers okay Joe so thanks cheers Joe good to talk to you see you Kieran The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball <laughs>